everyone. It's the Life of Gem Live video podcast. And the audio, remember, is now on Apple Podcasts. And today is December 6, 2023. We're right before Christmas. I'm wearing my Christmas sweater. And I have an amazing guest here. Give us a wave, Miss Ross. Miss Ross. Uh, Andre Ross, who wrote this beautiful memoir, A Natural Selection, A Memoir of Adoption in Wilderness. But first, I have a shout out. Oh, there's the book. Go get it. I believe it's on the University of, um, it's Can Cavan Carey Press, C-A-V-A-N-K-E-R-R-Y Press. And I have a shout out. I have a friend tomorrow that has a book party and it's at the Riverside Library in Landia is publishing her book tomorrow. It's being released. It's called Breaking Pattern. And it's about a young cowgirl, Chicana from Riverside. So exciting stuff. And I'll be there interviewing her in person. So if you want to see me in person and you want to get Tish's book, go to the Riverside Library at 6.30 p.m. So back to our guest, Miss Andrea Ross, who wrote this beautiful book. Let me read her bio and then we'll get into the interview. Oh, oops. <laughs> this is the book, A Natural Selection, A Memoir of uh, Adoption and Wilderness. So I'm going to actually unmute you. So if I mess up again, say something. So hello. Nice to have Hi. you. So I'm going to read your bio and then we're going to get into, um, you're going to read something for us. Is that right? Okay. Andrea Ross's book, A Natural Selection, A Memoir of Adoption and Wilderness, recounts her years working as a wilderness guide while she searches for her biological family. She now lives in Northern California and teaches in the university writing program at UC Davis. Her writing has appeared widely, including in The Huffington Post, Plowshares, Bay Nature, Terrain, The Conversation, Mountain Gazette, and on many podcasts such as this one, and as well as on adoptees on Let's Talk Memoir, Adoption, The Making of Me, and Writing Westward. You can find everything about her on her website, www.andrearosswriter.com. Welcome. Thank you so much. I'm happy to be here. Great. And I'm going to put the link really quick before you read um, into the, uh, oops, I'll, while you're reading, I'm going to put the link to your book in the comments. So people, please, if you have questions, use the comments field. If you want to comment on the reading, please use the comments field. Take it away. I'm still here in the background. All right. Thank you. I'm going to start with the beginning of the book. It kind of starts with a bang. So sometimes it's nice to um, introduce uh, new readers to that. Um, so this is chapter one. And um, I'm not even going to tell you the chapter title because it gives away the surprise a little bit. Here we go. A dusty scratching noise arose from the wooden planks beneath my feet. It was as if the wood rats, who usually scrabbled around in the ceiling of the old staff house, had suddenly moved underground and were desperate to escape. Then the floor began to move, undulating as the racket continued. I struggled to stand up, guitar strapped across my chest. I had been in a few earthquakes before, but none of them had made a deafening sound like Friday night at the racetrack. I looked down at my feet, shod as usual in hiking boots, and saw the floor rocking so violently, I had trouble balancing. The wood panel walls shuddered, the roof started creaking, 
and gritty brown ash, a century's worth of dust and wood rat shit showered on me from between ceiling planks. I tried to brush it from my hair, but then the taxidermied great horned owl that we used for demonstrating night vision and silent flight took a dive from its perch and thudded, puffing apart on the floor and making me jump back with a start. I ran outside, guitar bouncing on, in front of me on its strap. Once out of the house, I turned towards it. The roof line rippled and heaved like a break dancer I'd recently seen in the Mission District. I turned away so I wouldn't have to see it fall. Instead, I watched a grove of mature live oak trees swaying cartoonishly like punching bags being struck repeatedly by some giant fist. Acorns thundered down on me, pelting my scalp. I covered my head, but they bruised my knuckles and banged the guitar, whose strings twanged like the soundtrack of a horror movie. Again, I ran, looking for protection. As I neared some metal picnic tables, the racket grew even louder. The din of acorns striking them was deafening. I crawled under a table, even though I was sure a tree would fall on it and crush me. The noise and violent earth shaking continued, so I closed my eyes and covered my face with my hands, not wanting to see the destruction about to rip loose from the crust of the earth. Roots rising up like twisted hands, trunks crashing down, things that don't usually move at all stirred with a crunch and a crackle. This can't happen now, I thought. I never got the chance to meet my birth parents. The roaring surge agitated around me. I curled into an even smaller ball through the, beneath the picnic table, and then it stopped. I looked up. The trees were still standing, the house still intact. People emerged from various buildings and stood outside with frightened and confused looks on their faces. It was my second day as a teacher of sixth grade environmental science at a week-long outdoor program near the Santa Cruz Mountains my first job after college. I hadn't been trained in what to do if the biggest earthquake in 80 years occurred while I was playing guitar on my afternoon break. The kids are on the field, someone yelled. We all ran out to where our students had been writing in their science journals with their classroom teachers. Kids cried and whimpered, huddling around their teachers. And Sarah, the principal, ran up with a roster of everyone in residence at the school that week. We did a head count. Darkness would fall soon, so we led group activities on the playing field with the maintenance staff while the maintenance staff checked all the kids' cabins to see if they were safe to occupy for the night. We played silly, nobody loses games of blog tag and everybody's it, running around in the grass and pretending everything was okay. We didn't know the extent of the damage yet, didn't know that the marina district in San Francisco was aflame that people had been buried alive in Santa Cruz, that the Bay Bridge's upper deck had collapsed. But soon the waves of bad news began to roll in via radio and telephone. Teacher Joe decided we should do a barn boogie in the field while the building inspections continued. While he called the patty cake polka and the Virginia reel, I heard from Sarah that one cabin had fallen off its foundations and water spouted from the ground beneath. The electricity was out, so the square dance music came from a big silver boombox whose batteries were slowly but surely running out of power. I ran back to the trailer that I lived in <clears throat> to grab a sweater for the long evening ahead. 
I was sure I would find my boxy home rocked off its foundation into the redwood forest behind it, but somehow the trailer hadn't overturned in the quake. Inside, though, my clothing, books, and teaching supplies lay strewn across the floor as if ransacked by thieves. Bug collection boxes, hand lenses, and diagrams of the redwood tree life cycle littered the floor. I noticed my heavy, hardbound poetry anthologies piled on my bed and imagined what might have happened to me had I been there during the quake. I decided to deal with the mess later, found a sweater, and headed for the camp's office where the only phone was located. I wanted to call my parents, who lived a few hours' drive north in Chico. I figured they were well out of the earthquake's range, would be, but would be worried about me. <clears throat> I heard Sarah on the phone. The school board told us to keep the kids here, she said. I peeked through the office's mullioned windows and saw her twiddling a pencil in the air. It looked rubbery, undulating in space. I understand, she said, but do you really want your child to be on a bridge right now? I sat on the stone planter in front of the office and grabbed a stick to dig in the dirt while I waited for her call to end. I had always spent a lot of time rooting around like that. In elementary school, I hadn't liked playing sports at recess, so I dug. One day, on the baseball field near the chain link backstop, my friend Amy and I discovered a tiny constellation of glass shards embedded in the hard pan soil where the grass had been worn away by kids' sneakers. Each piece of glass formed a tiny dome under which minuscule weeds grew. Every little terrarium was a world within a world, and I ran out to the baseball diamond during recess every day to polish the tiny vitrines and narrate adventures inside the fantasy worlds I imagined beneath the glass. I saw multitudes in those domes, other places in which I might live. Sitting on that planter in front of Sarah's office, I was still seeking something, looking to nature for answers. And it was my job to take care of groups of kids away from their parents for a week at a time. Every morning, every Monday morning, busloads of sixth graders arrived in a cloud of diesel fumes at our little camp beneath the redwood trees. And it was my job to guide them through the nature, as many of them called it, until Friday afternoon when they would be transported back to their parents. In the interim, I was their mother and father, their older sister and confidant, their teacher and guide. Of course I felt unequipped. I was 22 years old and didn't know much about taking care of anyone. I barely knew how to take care of myself. As I dug with the stick, I wondered, what will my world be like now that the earth seems to have cracked open? Thanks. Beautiful, beautiful. You know, I, I want to talk about that section. I think it's really interesting. You title that because you break this book up into uh, three sections. Outer space is the first section. And I love your titles, by the way. You're really good at titles. But <laughs> yeah, every all your chapters have really great titles. And I think that's an underused art. Um, but I love how the first chapter, Earthquake, uh, how it triggers that earthquake, triggers the need for you to find your birth parents. You say on page nine, and you just read that part very explicitly. And ever since the earthquake, I had thought about finding my birth parents. And um, 
as if, like you said, your earth had cracked open and there, you realize that there was this wound. I love it factually. And that's what I love about me a memoir is that you can use the factual to create metaphor and symbolism. So, yeah, it reminded me in a lot of ways in the, and I mean this as a huge compliment because many people have tried to mimic this, the way that Cheryl Strayed starts wild when she loses the shoe right? It's, it's a metaphor of loss that's very subtle. So talk about why you started with the earthquake as a writer, which means so much also considering your focus on the earth, environment, and nature. Great question. Well, so as you probably know, like writing is not linear. And so I wrote around and through and into and then started trying to figure out how I was going to piece this thing together. And mm. um, I chose to put that scene first, even though it's not really the beginning of the story. Um, it is a bit of a flashback. So we're kind of starting in media res, as they say, um, because I wanted it literally to open with a bang. I wanted to grab people's attention. I wanted them to be transported immediately into my weird world of living outdoors and, you know, taking kids on hikes all the time and how, uh, how seeking and um, nature and the environment were all intertwined for me. Mm -hmm. So the, that's, it's sort of a multi-pronged reason. Yeah. And it's, it's beautifully done. And like you said, we kind of don't know where in time we are and that's okay. Cause your book, traverses a lot of time and space, but also talk about the role hiking plays in this first section of the book. Um, especially, uh, I mean, in the first, uh, the second section of the book, really in the section titled uh, wilderness about hiking, right? Hiking and you being a hiker and a wilderness guide is such a part of your identity, but you you're overcoming these health struggles and able to be able to do it. But you're also trying to find your biological parents, which it's like roadblock after roadblock after, road. you know, they say to write a good movie or good fiction, you put your narrator through hell and you're like, it was a lot of stuff you had to overcome to kind of do your journey. Why was that important for you? Like, because that, that image and what I loved about it is that we, we understand immediately how resilient the narrator is and I'm going to call it the narrator but it's you but you mm. can't exactly write yourself perfectly it's a perspective of you right I was say Jenny is a character in the book she's not me anymore she's me as a kid me as a young adult but um so the narrator in this book is very resilient and she's had great parents but they were a little anti uh like they're not they're, they're the opposite of helicopter right they're kind of like my parents were like get out of the house go do your own thing um, not as nurturing as parents now. So talk about that, how that it, that resilience, hiking, and then that search for your, the, the, the thing that gives this narrator the perseverance and fortitude to finish the search. And we're not going to give any of that away towards the end and what happens with that. But she does get some, gain some ground. Uh, is, is it the hiking? Is it her? What is it? Well, yeah, there's a funny sort of cyclical, like a Uruburos and a snake biting its own tail quality uh -huh. to this whole thing, which is I got really sick when I was 20 and 
that's what made me realize, oh, I need to know my my medical history and I have zero access to it as an adopted person in a, what's known as closed adoption, which means we get no information about anybody. And um, so that was the catalyst or the inciting incident. And the, the irony about that was that at the time, I wasn't really very outdoorsy or athletic, but I was sick. And I, the only thing I could think of to ex- try to expel whatever was wrong with me because it was undiagnosed, we didn't know what was wrong with me, was I was like, I'm going to literally exercise this thing out of my body. So both spellings of the word exercise, right? So I wanted to ah. get it out of my body. And so I de- I bought a mountain bike. <laughs> I just started trying to ride it up hills because I lived in Santa Cruz and there I was going to school at the time and there's this huge hill to get up to campus. And so the, the sickness that is a, you know, was that catalyzed my search also catalyzed my life outdoors. Mm. And so the sickness brought me a bunch of things. Um, And so then hiking, you know, I felt better when I hiked, my, my body didn't hurt as much. So that was, that was part of it. But then it, it sort of became a metaphor for searching, right? Wandering around the wilderness and uh, finding new trails and feeling like uh, just stomping my way around the world or around the backcountry helped me feel more worthy of being on this planet. It somehow like reified me, I guess. And, um, you know, again, at the time, I certainly didn't know it was a metaphor for my search, but Mm. I had to do some meaning making after many years. And that's what it came up with was that's what was really going on for me. Yeah. And from a craft perspective, that's the really interesting thing that a lot of people don't realize about memoir. We have to find the threads within our own lives to create the narrative thread for the book. And some stuff happens magically, right? Um, I have books. I have these little, I reference a number of young adult books in my, in my own book. And it, that just happened organically for me, but other things are very purposeful. Like, and then you may not realize it while you're writing it, but while you're editing it, you can bring this all together. Right. And then um, you're finding yourself in a lot of ways in this. And, and your book is in many ways, a how to of how to investigate or search for your biological parents, which I really loved about it about that, because you gave a lot of like, if someone was an adoptee with a closed adoption, um, you gave them a lot of like ideas that someone could use, right? How do you find someone, right? How do you, how do you do it? Although, although since, I mean, this happened pre-internet, I, my search took place pre-internet and pre-23andMe and Ancestry.com. Okay. So so. the game has really changed. So, I mean, I don't know if it serves as a how-to as much anymore as uh, like, look at all the crazy stuff (laughs) I had to try because there was no internet or, or yeah. Yeah. The interesting part about that is that, you know, my dad died about 17 years ago and I, um, my mom always knew we had this long lost cousin, my, my dad's brother who died when my dad was younger 
in after the world after World War II, I believe. I had a wife in France. And this is all pre-internet. I'm like, you know, this is like 2006, probably the internet's like, yeah, it's there. And it wasn't until after my dad died that my cousin uh, Pasquale in Paris, near Paris in France, was able to find us because of the internet and Facebook. And so, yeah, you're right. Things have completely changed. And now with 23andMe, I mean, you may find out information you don't even want to know. What what I found was really interesting, though, because the book is also kind of um, a coming of age story about you as a writer, but it's also a romance. And um, but it's also the narrator has to realize what she doesn't want romantically. And there's a scene with Don on page 53 where he's not supporting you and you're repelling the way you want him to, which becomes a metaphor for who he would be as a partner generally. And it gives the narrator these epiphanies, right, about what she's looking for and kind of, I guess, her realizing what she wants, she eventually does find that. So it was that something that you knew you wanted to weave in, um, kind of the pitfalls of relationships and about loving yourself enough to know you deserve better? Well, yeah, for sure. And also I felt like I needed to have him as a character in there. Um, partly because, you know, he sort of was the gateway to like the wild lands and to the backcountry for mm-hmm. me. He was a lot more experienced in climbing and backpacking and route finding and things like that. And he like be, being with him opened up this whole world to me that I had not had any access to before. And so he was really, really important character mm. for me in my life because it would have been completely different had I not, you know, met and fallen in love with him. Um, but I did feel like I had to show, you know, what that relationship meant and how, where it brought me in terms of my longer journey towards, you know, finding a lifelong partner to becoming more, you know, feeling more worthy and, and more settled. So, um, and he was certainly a type and he was a type that I dated for a long time (laughs) of many, he was a mountain man and I dated exclusively mountain men for a long time. And then, and then things started to change. So, yeah. And you met your, your husband in your grad program, isn't that right? Yeah. And he was not a mountain man. (laughs) He was a creative. Well, he was a mountain man, but not in a very like nuanced way, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Well, I admire you so much because I always say uh, my only exercise is like running a bathtub and reading a book. You know, and uh, my husband's been like, you need to walk, walk, walk. And I'm like, no, my feet hurt. Oh, I want to read. And I, I literally could just read all day. If, if you let me, I would lay in bed and read all day. That's what I did as a kid. And I, I just had this admiration for this narrator who, despite all the obstacles, is still climbing those mountains, still like, because the narrator, it's very clear that the narrator loves the outdoors. The, the physical of it may be very strenuous and difficult for the narrator, but the outdoor part of it is something the narrator clearly has a spiritual connection with. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That she gets a lot from it. Yeah. Yeah. That it's, a, it's a struggle to get there, but that the returns are great. I love that scene with your mom where she takes the donkey and you want her to hike. And I felt for the mom because I have a twin sister who's very athletic. 
And uh, she's always hiking and, and she's always pushing my elderly mom to do more. And I'm like, dude, realize mom's like 82 years old. She can't walk around New York City at your pace. My sister has done iron like mini marathons and she used to do the long swims and all that stuff. And I'm like, dude, like these people are old. And like, I'm like that too. Like, give us some slack. We can't keep up with your stride. So I, I felt for the mom in some way, but the narrator clearly realizes at some point in that um, her mom can't do that hike. And it's not mm-hmm. that the mom doesn't want to. She just fully realizes her own limitations, which the narrator doesn't. The narrator actually at sometimes puts herself at risk because she's pushing herself too hard physically. Don't you think? Yeah. 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 Um, let's talk about moms more and Don more. What was it like? Has Don and your and everyone in your family read the book? Your husband, everyone, your kid. Uh, talk about writing about family. I have a special affinity for this topic and memoir about how difficult it is. What were your strategies you use? Some people don't tell their family, then publish the book. Some people have their family approve it. Some people like me fight with their family and then come to terms and and almost throw it away and then end up publishing it and everything's fine now. Um, some people end up in huge drama with their family. Um, your adopted parents clearly loved you. They clearly did. Um, you know, after you have a car accident, they really support you. Um, your mom said, always tells you you were very much wanted. And um, your mom and dad were very... your adoptive parents were very supportive of your search for biological parents. They didn't seem like they put up a lot of uh, barriers to that. Talk Mm -hmm. about writing memoir, writing your truth, how hard that was, and whether you ever struggled with whether to write it at all. (laughs) The question is, did I ever not struggle (laughs) with it? Yeah. So it is really hard when you're writing about real humans who you love, uh, who are alive. Mm. Um, And I would say, you know, there were many times when I like wanted to quit writing it because it just felt too scary to to write about, you know, these kind of touchy subjects. I um, I, I felt like it was really, really important to create characters of everybody who were round um, so that everybody was kind of you could sort of see their point of view despite, you know, whatever weird thing they might have been doing. Like I try to show, you know, what their reasoning might've been. Um, so that it wasn't just like, you're the good guy and you're the bad guy. And you know, that, that's just, that's not interesting, nor is it true. Um, I was more concerned about, um, what my birth parents would think. Yeah. Um, Cause it's just, it's not that much about my adoptive parents. You know, the focus isn't really on them. Um, and the sort of grittier stuff is, you know, involves my, my birth mom and my birth dad. Um, and so I was terrified that they would reject me again mm-hmm. <laughs> upon reading the book. And, um, and so I kept kind of starting and stopping and starting and stopping. And every single time I had to kind of come back around to this is my truth. I feel really compelled to put it out there because 
Um, there's a it's the only way you would write is is if you are compelled. It's like an addiction, right? I right. know exactly what you mean. It doesn't feel good all the time necessarily. It's very right. difficult and heart wrenching. Yeah. Mine took me 15 years. How long did this take you? Yeah, probably 10. Yeah, mm -hmm. or maybe more. I don't know. It's hard <laughs> to tell, you know. But but I just felt like I really had something I wanted to say. I really felt so strongly that. There's this singular brand of loneliness that people who don't have mm. access to their origins experience, and it's not understood well by people who don't have that same experience. And I ran up against people time and time again, you know, just who just really didn't get that, that there's just this deep, you know, there is a deep wound. It's real. Um, it tracks you th through your whole life. Um and I wanted to get that message out. And so that's why I persisted. Um, but it did yeah. take a long time. And it was hard. You know, you, as you know, you have to go to the deep, dark places um, of various relationships in memoir. And and then you have to kind of recover from doing that, you know. So that that's part of why memoir takes a long time, I think. You know? What was your mom's reaction? My adoptive mom or my birth? Yeah, your adoptive mom. Because she's in the book the most, really. Yeah. Well, um, she, she has dementia. So oh, I'm she, sorry. she said, she said she was very proud of me, Aww. which was very sweet, but I don't know I, if she read the book. I don't know that she remembered it, you know, and my dad yeah. died before the book was published. So okay. I didn't have to with them. Yeah. So. I love the uh, roundness of your mother's character. It's it's and it's very hard to write these mother characters that are a little complicated. Um, and you just did it very well, you know. Um, and I guess at least your mom's not going to go to a reading and be like, "It's all lies," you know. But on the other hand, it would be nice if she could appreciate the love that you show that she has for you. Yeah. And I, I always say that she knows, you know, either here and here, they say my dad sits on my shoulder and I literally wrote my book to bring my dad back to life. It was I like a compulsion. Yeah. Right. And um, how did your, I don't want to give too much away about the search thing, but um, so we won't talk about how your adoptive mother and, parents felt about it but read the book and get to the end and figure out what happens with that because that is very subtle the way that you end the book uh, but I don't want to get into that because I really want people to get the book the thing that's really interesting too for those writers that are watching um, and listening in on Apple is that this is also a coming of age story to being a creative hmm. it's about the narrator's transformation to becoming a writer. You talk about attending an MFA program. Talk about what role telling your story and coming of age as a writer plays in this memoir. Was that purposeful? Or is that just part of your history that you felt that you had to put in? Or are you really saying that the building blocks of life is really being a creative and being able to form this, this, this thing that will live forever like a rock, right? This book will always be out there in, in the ether. Um, well, I think that, um, I, I definitely wouldn't have been able to write the book if I didn't have a creative inclination. Hmm. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to write it if I hadn't gone through an MFA program, although my MFA is in poetry and yeah. so I'm trained in poetry and I wrote a poetry manuscript that's about 
a lot of the same themes. Um, and then I graduated and then I thought, oh, shoot, I think I just did this in the wrong genre. Mm-hmm. I, mm-hmm. I want it to be more narrative than it can be, even in narrative poetry, mm-hmm. um, or and certainly in lyric poetry. So uh, it was a definitely. Weird... This is not poetic verse. You write. You have a poetic sensibility. I definitely felt that. But this is written like a pure memoir. I think you're a memoirist at heart. I mean, <laughs> yeah, this is an excavation, and that's what memoir is, right? I'm, I have a book that's hybrid and I, I get the role poetry can play, but you can't go as in depth. It's almost all metaphoric poetry. This is factual, right? This right. is an excavation. Right. So then I just, I self-taught how to write memoir, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and that was another part of why it took so long to write it was because I just, I was like, well, who, I don't, I don't know what I'm doing. Why should, why how can I possibly do this? And I just needed to get out of my own way and and do Mm -hmm. it. But, but definitely my poetic sensibilities super informed the writing of the book Um, because I, you know, because I, I don't know if I think this way naturally or if I learned how to do it by becoming a poet, but there's so much stuff that like where I make associations between unlike things you know, yes. like this metaphor for me, like, oh, the Glen Canyon Dam is exactly like closed adoption. <laughs> <laughs> no, exactly. Right? exactly. And so like, and, and I remember long ago reading Mary Carr's uh, The Liars Club. Oh, one of my favorite books of all it, time. It's so good, right? And and she, and I thought, oh, this, and this was sort of like the rebirth of the memoir, you know, back in like the mm-hmm. mid-90s or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, um, and this was actually before I even went to an MFA program. But um, I thought, this is really beautifully written, but it's memoir. And oh, what do you know? She's a poet and a, and a nonfiction writer, and that definitely lodged something way back in my brain. Like you can combine those two things and make it not just an interesting story, but a beautifully written story. Which you know, both of those things were important to me. Yeah, the Liars Club is right up there for me with Angel's Ashes, the Glass yeah, Castle. So you know, Dorothy Ellison's, which is uh, fictional, autobiographical, Bastard Out of Carolina, books like that, books that just taught me how to write memoir, you know, taught me how to write scene. Yeah, I mean, I think that as memoirists, I don't know if it's something you can teach someone, but we can learn it, right? You just read a lot of memoir, (laughs) Uh, I think is the trick, and you figure out how other people... Yeah, I read a lot of memoir, and I read craft books. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and yeah. you find out what you like and what, what you don't like. And, yeah. But what I liked about your book is, you know, sometimes you'll read a memoir and they don't mention um, their, they don't get to the writer part of it. Like, um, it almost seems like magic that this book exists. And I always love right. books that I just interviewed Michelle Otero and uh, who wrote um, a book called uh, Vessels a memoir of borders. And um, she does that too. There's about a 10% of her book is the MF, her MFA, you know, journey. And I really like that. I like knowing um, what someone's MFA program was a little bit like and stuff like that and how it led to them. You kind of can see the threads of them coming to these realizations that they're creative. Um, 
So let's go to the issue of your birth parents. Um, it takes many, many years for you to even make like small little strides in this search. Life continues to happen. And the furthest I'm going to tell people about what happens is at the end of part two, you are allowed to send a message to your birth mother. Did you always know that you wanted to kind of end like part two there, right? It's almost like a cliffhanger for want of a better term. And I really felt it. Like you don't um, give it to us easy. It's like the whole search for the birth parents is a very slow plodding. And it's because that's what it was, right? It's the only way to tell the story is by showing what it was like. And we really feel your frustration and but then we feel your joy when you get like these little these little nuggets of of like inspiration or investigation where you figure something out of what you can do. And then you get at the end of chapter two, you get to send a message and it ends kind of right there. And I love that about that part. Well, you know, like I said before, like I, I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, okay. like, you know, throwing the spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. Mm -hmm. You know, so I wrote until I couldn't write anymore. And then I had this big pool of writing and started to figure out how the various pieces spoke to each other. Mm. Um, and as I, you know, narrowed in on the order of things and how I was going to put in certain things as flashbacks, you know, so that I could have a more sort of cohesive trajectory, I, I found that because it is kind of, it's a mystery, right? Mm -hmm. Right. It's a, it, it's a mystery. And so I really wanted it to be a page turner. I wanted it to, to be like, okay, so we got to here, but then what happens? And then, okay, you make this next little move and like, but then what happens? And so, you know, the, the huge, huge moment of knowing that she's out there and she's alive and I'm allowed to actually contact her. Like that's, humongous in the trajectory of this of the plot right so I definitely wanted that to be a cliffhanger like I for sure did that on purpose you did it really well and I always say that my favorite memoirs are like my favorite albums Ziggy Stardust is my favorite album of all time and it's the sequencing so the way that you put the book together so matters it's it's the hardest part in my opinion to figure out the sequencing, but it's the most important thing. And when the sequencing is off in a book, you can always see it. It's like glaring. And your book is just, it's seamless in its sequencing. And I think it's because you took that time, but it's also because even though there's these cliffhangers, it's like John Lennon says, you know, life happens when you're making plans. There's all this other bits of your life right. that are continuing to turn. The earth is continuing to turn, but there's this narrative thread through the book that is a mystery where you're wondering, is the narrator going to find them or not going to find her or not? Is she going to fill the void or not? And I could have seen you writing a book if you were unsuccessful too. It would just be a very different book, right? And very different ending. Um, so talk about um, the end. I don't want to give anything away, but you end up a very ambiguous, kind of happy, joyful, but kind of ambiguous note. Was that also purposeful? Like well, you know, there are no happy endings, like no matter what there are, yeah. there, there really are. Life is just life. It's hard to know where to end a memoir. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, so um, 
And I certainly, you know, this being my first memoir, I really didn't. <laughs> I was like, I don't know where this is supposed to end. Um, and so I, I love random I, endings, by the way. I have a story that ends with my dad <laughs> frying up a pork chop. I've never been able to end a story like on a hot, like, I just think, um, oh, hold on, you're freezing. We're freezing. We're back. Okay. okay, everyone. So we're talking. Um, the next thing I wanted to ask you about was your road to publication. If you could tell the people listening out there, kind of what was that like? This book took probably more than a decade. And do you have any advice for how to persevere through big projects? And we're also talking about sequencing, how to organize your work when you're writing these pieces separately. Like, for example, I wrote my memoir over 10 years in short story form. And, and then I had to get rid of all the, um, all of the duplication, right? There's a lot of like, if Jenny and her sister, I didn't want to say the names over and over or say that she was her twin or whatever it was. How do you organize it when you're worried about sequencing? Right. And I talked in a little bit earlier about how my favorite books are like my favorite albums, that the sequencing is everything. How do you organize yourself while you're writing? And then after you're writing to figure it out? Well, I, I got a lot of help from beta readers, from friends, mm -hmm. so from writing group friends. Um, you know, I just got a lot of advice about, okay, well, is this part advancing the narrative or is it, does this they need to be tossed entirely or could this be put in as a flashback in order to make a certain scene richer? Um, but Tell it was really quick what a beta reading reader oh just a just a, just a reader who is reading the manuscript to um give you feedback on it front to from beginning to end right yeah yeah and they give you a set of so i guess i would say like this the sequencing was it was really organic i just had to figure it out i so i've since been told that you know there are some people who plot the whole trajectory of of a book and i'm incapable of that at least at this point and so <laughs> like i said you know i just created this mass of content and then tried to look at how various things might fit together and um it that part it took a while you know it it took kind of trying things on for size i definitely had a different opening scene for a while and I was like oh that's not gonna work you know but I would get feedback from from writer friends and from people I was in writing groups with about sequencing because I didn't know what I was doing <laughs> yeah that's really interesting um Stephanie Barbie Hammer who was one of my professors who's a writer friend of mine she would say there's two types of writers there's fly by the seat of your pants writers and there's organized writers and both of us are clearly fly by the seat of your pants and yeah. I think the benefit to doing it that way, and a lot of science fiction writers do this too, um, they'll piece a, a book together through multiple short stories and find the threads and stuff. It's very similar in some ways. Um, is that there's almost like a organic feel to it, right? Yeah, definitely. So um, I actually started mine, I forced myself to write it by creating a blog. 
Mm. So that I, I was like, I, you know, I was like, okay, I have this little audience. I'm sure it was very little, <laughs> um, but I felt who I felt beholden to. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to post three times a week and it only has to be this long, you know, it doesn't have to be huge and it doesn't have to be great. And it doesn't have to be super polished, but it has to be something and it has to be there on a regular basis. So I kind of tricked myself. I sort of backed my way into it by doing that. And so then by the end of a year or something, I had, like you said, a number of discrete pieces that all um, were part of my story. And then I had, you know, then I could look at them and put them together and it helped me to, to fuel me to write more. But um, yeah, it's, for me, it's definitely very organic. And I hadn't learned the terms, you know, plotters and pantsers until recently, but I'm definitely a pantser, <laughs> <laughs> which doesn't mean I run around pulling people's pants off, which is what that term meant when I was a kid. But somebody told me that if you fly by the seat of your pants, you are a pantser. <laughs> No, I, I love that term. I'm going to use the pantser term. So um, before we end, we have about 12, 13 more minutes. Um, if you could tell people how to find you and your work, what's next on the horizon for you, if you have any events. And then if you could read another seven to 10 minutes to take us out. I wanted to let people know next week, uh, Tisha is on about her book, Breaking Pattern. And then to start the new year, I have Joe Scott Coe on is a professor at Riverside Community College who wrote this beautiful book by University of Texas Press called um, Unheard Witness. Um, it's, it's stunningly done. So much research and time and energy went into that. You can tell by the product. But if you could read from your beautiful book, Unnatural Selection, A Memoir of Adoption and Wilderness. For those who listen to this on Apple, if you leave me a review, I have a couple copies of this that I bought. I'm going to be giving them away for people who read, who either share the podcast or leave me a review. So. Yay. Thanks for doing that. Um, okay. So uh, I can, you can find me at andrearosswriter.com. Um, I have a website that has lots of links to clips um, of video and and audio um, clips. Also, lots of essays that I've written that are adoption related, and then more literary stuff that's that's uh, you know in the literary world. Um, so that's a, a good clearinghouse for stuff about me. What's coming next is I'm writing another memoir. Um, and this one is about um, women's friendships. So it's about these two people that I met when I was very young. I was three and six years old when I met these two women. Well, they were girls. We were all girls at the time. And we stayed friends our whole lives. And since our very early 20s, even though we've lived all over the place, all over places in the in the country, we've maintained our friendships largely by going out on a backpacking trip, just the three of us once a year. And so it's about these abiding friendships and how um, nature can be a galvanizing tool for, for relationships. Um, and it's about how... Uh, it's about women aging and it's about our approaches to combating climate change. So it's, wow. it's a, whole, a lot of stuff. And so again, I'm just kind of writing the pool right now. I just, I'm in the middle, I'm just in the middle of the muck of just writing stuff that I think 
has something to do with it. And later I will see if it does um, and put it together. So um, read that. I'm still best friends with my two friends, Melinda, who I met when I was five and Tracy, who I met when I was 15 in high school. And I love the idea of you using that thread of the one year meetup kind of thing to um, show, I mean, you could almost write in three different voices. It would be super interesting, but just from one perspective, looking at the other two friends could be super interesting too. So I will look out for that. That sounds fascinating. And I think with a lot of women. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, women's friendships are really important and I don't think they get enough airtime in, in literature, you know, there's a lot yeah. about romantic, romantic. Because the older they get, the more they value them. I just saw this little clip my husband sent me, and it's it's a male comedian, and he's like, I'm an old man. I'm trying to get rid of people. You know, it's like the the difference between men and women, and not, not stereotypically because everyone's different, but a lot of uh, women keep their friendships, and they become more and more important to them, right? Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. So if you want to read for us, I would love that. And then we'll come back in right after your reading and we'll say our goodbyes and um, stick around right after the podcast. So I can talk to you really quick and make sure we download this. And um, this will be on Apple Podcasts. We're going to edit out the little snafus. But if you want to see the snafus in person, then you can just watch it uh, live on my website or live on Facebook. So take us away and then we'll be back to say our goodbyes. But I'm I'm here. I'm just in the background. Okay. Okay, so the rest of the book in that it is the only part that is imagined. Um, The thing about memoirs is we make we make a contract with our audience that um, that we're telling the truth. And of course, the truth is subjective and memoir is based on memory and memory is fallible. So there's certainly some room for error, but a good memoirist, in my opinion, you know, hews as closely to the truth as they can, which is not to say that everything, you know, all the conversations and all the dialogue and things like that in my book are exactly true to life because some of this stuff happened decades ago and I had to make up dialogue that sort of went along the path of what I could remember. Okay. All that said, um, because this is a book about not knowing (laughs) and the need to know, um, I felt like it was important to have an imagined um, section to underscore the feeling that people like me can get when we don't know the the truth and we have to make up stuff in order to go on with our lives, you know, in order to get through the day or get through something difficult. And so this is based on, um, on information that I did get, but some of it is made up. Um, and like I said, I, I, it's an important part of my memoir because my memoir is about not knowing. Um, and what we do when we don't know. All right. So again, I'm not going to tell you the the chapter title because it'll kind of ruin a little bit of a surprise. So we'll just jump right into it. This is how I imagine it. It's January in Northern Colorado. A snowstorm begins to blow across the front range, across the fallow fields and cattle farms surrounding the college. 
Just outside her cinder block dormitory on the edge of campus, my birth mother, a first year college student, lugs her hamper to the next dorm. Olive, her ex-boyfriend's mother, gray-haired, strong, appears unexpectedly walking in from the parking lot. She blocks Elaine, my birth mother's path. Say you're not pregnant, she snaps. Elaine stops, unable to do or say anything. Both women stand in the cold, quivering with rage, fear, staring at each other for a long moment. Olive growls again, say you're not pregnant. Elaine, still paralyzed with shock and fear, holds the laundry basket tight against her belly. Olive reaches out and slaps Elaine across her cheek, and Elaine drops the basket. A few socks tumble to the pavement, limp birds downed in a storm. Snow flurries swirl in the air, settle on the fallen laundry. Now visible, Elaine's belly protrudes tellingly. Elaine's doormate pokes her head out of a second-story window to see what's going on, and my birth mother quietly says to Olive, I'm not pregnant. Olive replies in a low voice, that's right, you stay away from my son, he's married now. She turns briskly and hurries back to her car. Elaine stands in the cold, one hand on her belly. Elaine's father, John, walks in the front door of his white clabbered house carrying a letter he has just opened. He waves it at his wife. Did you know about this? He asks. He is yelling. His face is red. Teresa stands at the sink washing dishes. What in heaven's name is going on? She wipes her hands on her apron, takes the letter from her husband's outstretched hand and reads it. She gasps and lowers herself onto the vinyl upholstery of the nearest kitchen chair. John has an idea of what, that whatever is going on has something to do with the boy Elaine has dated on and off for the past year. They try to call Elaine, but the dorm phone rings, echoing like a song down the hallway. Elaine's parents decide they must go find her, and they rush to their silver Chevy, her mother still clasping the letter in her hand. They drive the 40 miles north from Longmont to Greeley to find out why their daughter has quit school. Even in winter, the smell from the cattle feedlots makes its way into the car. Soon, Elaine's parents are knocking at her dormitory. They mean to interrogate her, but the instant she opens the door, they see the small, gravid bump straining at her blue dress. Elaine's eyes tear up when she sees them. John and Teresa step inside the small bedroom and close the door behind them. In a gravelly voice, John says, Who's the father? Elaine stares at the floor, holding back sobs. You've ruined your life. You've ruined our lives, her mother says, panic on her face. She turns to her husband. What are we going to do? She folds her arms across her body as if a draft has blown into the room. Does Theo know? John demands. His left hand grips the letter now, crumpled, a spent peony. Elaine nods. She knows her parents know that Theo has married another pregnant girl. They know she herself attended their wedding. This unspoken fact hangs thickly in the air. There will be no shotgun wedding for Elaine. The other girl's father has seen to that. Elaine begins to cry openly and sits on her narrow bed. Her father continues to stand, his face reddening again. 
He says nothing. What were you thinking, Elaine, that you could quit school and have a baby in this dorm without us knowing? Asks her mother, sinking onto the bed. In a softer voice, she says, why didn't you tell us? John opens the closet door, rifles around for a suitcase, and places one on the bed. Pack your things. We're leaving. Elaine and her parents pack her belongings. A plush toy puppy, her college girl clothing. At one point, when her parents aren't looking, Elaine slides a photograph between the pages of her diary. It's of herself and Theo, dressed up for her high school prom. She wears long pink evening gloves and a burgundy velvet gown. Her hair is arranged in a spun sugar bouffant, topped with a little white bow, and her eyes sparkle mischievously as she gazes up at his goofy, smiling face. She doesn't want her parents to destroy this picture, snapped not quite a year before. The three of them drive in silence back to their house in Longmont, arriving in time to eat a late supper at home. After washing the dishes, Elaine retreats to her bedroom. It feels cozy, familiar. Maybe everything will be all right, she thinks. She's home with her parents, away from school where her friends were wondering why she wasn't attending classes. She has her bedroom, her stuffed animals. She imagines living there throughout the pregnancy. Maybe her mother will help with the baby. Maybe she hasn't ruined their lives. She hasn't told them that Theo's mother slapped her. She won't. The next morning at the breakfast table, John announces that Elaine will not be staying with them at home, nor will she keep the baby. He has already called the Florence Crittenden home for unwed mothers in Denver, arranging for Elaine to stay there until the baby is born. We expected better from you, he says. I'm so sorry, Dad. She stares at a plate of scrambled eggs her mother has set in front of her. She's ravenous all the time now, but she cannot pick up her fork. Her father's disgust has immobilized her. You need to put this behind you so you can live a normal life. Do you understand me? He says. Yes, she replies. It'll be like it never happened, Teresa says, standing near Elaine's seated form, tentatively stroking her daughter's long brown hair. She glances at her husband, then back at Elaine. Later, you'll be able to marry a good man and have children with him when it's the right time. But it... Elaine stops herself. She gazes at her belly, straining against the shift she found in her closet. She knows better than to suggest that now could be the right time to have a baby. Her father is a fierce man with a temper and no patience for what he calls nonsense. Elaine's feelings about this matter qualify as nonsense. She is sure of that. Thank you. Wow. Wow. That's the beauty of memoir that you created this out of pretty much, you know, the the art of it, you know. Thank and you. Your mother's character and imagining what that must have been like. And, you know, my niece who was seven was 17. She just turned 18, just had a baby. And, you know, it was difficult and uh, it wasn't ideal, but we're very glad that she decided to keep him and he's brought so much joy to our whole family. So I get a little bit choked up because I think that what you capture in that section called slapped, which we can give it away now is the sadness of this all. Right? Mm -hmm. Well, the shame, uh, <laughs> 
of the that era that it was just so shameful and there was so much secrecy around yeah. all of this. Um, it really made it really awful for a lot of people. And she lacked um, choices in pretty much everything. Mm-hmm. Um, reminds me of the movie Priscilla in some ways. Yeah, yeah. Um, that lack of the ability to kind of, you know, do your own destiny. And, yeah. Um, Good. But yeah, great, great, great passage to read. I have a passage in my memoir where I imagine uh, my mom's voice. So I think it's really, um, and you do it in italics, which I really like because it's a signal to the audience. And I think in many ways, your your book can be used as an example of craft. Mm-hmm. How do you do these things in memoir that are difficult? You have to sometimes just imagine it and you tell your reader the authenticity and the integrity is telling your reader what you're or signaling to the reader what you're doing. Right. You, I think you say at the beginning of that chapter, you're very overt about it, which this is how I imagine it. Mm-hmm. Very simple. Right. This is how I imagine it. That's it. And you imagine it. And like you said, it's some of it's based on probably stuff you found out later. Right. But you're still imagining it. And it's just so beautiful. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Bravo. Well, thanks for having, uh, for coming on. We're going to say bye to our audience and then we're going to talk really quick after. But thank you, everyone. Um, our last episode of 2023 will be next week with my friend Tisha. I don't know where I put her book. Oh, here it is. Who wrote Breaking Pattern about a young Chicana cowgirl. Oh, it's such a cool book. Um, it's a young adult novel. It's fiction. Um, and uh, thank you. Andrea Ross for coming on. Please, everyone that's listening in, go to the website and get her book. Just search for Unnatural Selection by Andrea Ross. A-N-D-R-E-A-R-O-S-S. Unnatural Selection, a memoir of adoption and wilderness. Please buy this book. It's so beautifully done. And thank you again for coming on. Oh, thank you so much. It was lovely to be here. Appreciate it. And with the snafus. And I did figure out what happened. And I'll tell you after. Okay. Bye, everyone. Bye.